Welcome to Bonafide, conversations in good faith about faith with Jonathan Storman. We have a breaking news story to tell you about. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. Today we've had a national tragedy. Christianity, it's under siege. Study after study shows Christianity is not the force it once was. But we are going to protect Christianity. Even before COVID, a growing number of Americans were moving away from organized religions. The group called Religious Nuns has steadily grown. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Bonafide. This is uh, Jonathan, and I am with uh, my good friend. Or I guess we haven't really spoken a lot through the years, but we were pretty good friends at Harding. Uh, Todd, we went okay. We went on a spring break campaign to Nashville together. We did. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, I uh, I got my ears pierced on that campaign, and my mom <laughs> was very unhappy with me. And then actually, I went I went back to Harding against the rules to have your ears pierced at Harding, and I got sick. And I went to the nurse's office, and she wouldn't treat me until I took the earrings out. So, uh, uh-uh. yeah, yeah. Were you like, you remember that song, Pierce My Ear? Yeah, I was just trying to embody that spirit. <laughs> I was really embodied really to that. It was the nurse like, look, we sing stuff we don't believe, okay? <laughs> so, I don't think it was that blatant, but yeah. It was, was it like a gender thing? Like men don't I have, have their ear? I don't know. I, just I, don't, know, I remember it was against the rules. It may not be now, um, but we were there a long time ago, Jonathan. You know they can wear shorts now. No, they can't. Before noon they or can. two Before, or whatever the time yeah, was? that's right. Oh, that's my gosh. Right. Wow, that place is just really, really gone. Hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Hell in a handbasket. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. I remember that was the trip. Do you remember Bad Brad getting his head shaved into a mohawk? It was you. It was you. No. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. You didn't shave his head, but you thought of uh, using the puppets to count. Like, uh, because we, were, we, we said that we had to have 100 people there. And Bad Brad was not. We made an announcement that we oh, Bad Brad. If we had a hundred people, oh, <laughs> and then we had like ninety-seven, and you came up with the idea of using the puppets to be like a, attendees, and so you said, "What about me? What about me?" And so we drug Bad Brad back to the kitchen oh. while he's trying to argue that puppets aren't people. <laughs> I feel like he should have won that argument. I feel like that's a very like lo- sound, logically argument. One, I love multiple things about that story. One, just my brilliance, obviously. But two, uh, that there were puppets involved in a mission trip. Like that just that just of warms course. my heart. <laughs> it's not a real. It's not a real. Yeah, mission trip. If, if it doesn't. So we're we're doing bonafide where we're talking about good faith conversations about this. I, the other day, I saw a post on Facebook, and my tr- my eye is trained enough to be like, "All right, that's a deconstruction." Um, and so I called you, and you you said, "Well, you know, that's exactly where I'm at, the season that I'm at." So uh, we decided to save it for the podcast. So the last <laughs> thing that I know about Todd is that you're starting this company. By all metrics, you seem to be doing quite well, and you. This was what ten years ago, where you're trying to talk about our fellowship and the things that need to change. 
and then and then what happened since then? Yeah, so, so just what, like a little little bit of history. I grew up yeah. Church of Christ. Um, went to Harding, obviously. Went to the Church of Christ after graduating Harding, and um, while I was at Harding, got confronted with ideas that I'd never been confronted with before. Um, mostly in the realm of postmodernism. I grew up in rural Kentucky, um, pretty small high school, pretty small church. Um, so these ideas of uh, relative truth and I mean, pretty pretty basic concepts had never been introduced to me until I got right. to Harding. And, and, I, and I really started asking some questions once I was at Harding about faith and, and reality and what I believed. Um, went to the Church of Christ after graduating college um, and really just bumped up against some struggles in that specific denomination um, and started questioning a lot of things about why do I believe what I believe, um, really reading the Bible differently than I had ever read it before, um, being confronted with actually knowing gay people. Uh, it was kind of like some normal, I think, life experiences that I had just never had before until I was out of college, which sounds really funny to me now. I was also trying to rationalize um, Ayn Rand's objectivism with Christianity because I was a super conservative, politically minded person. And so um, that was a really fascinating journey that did not last very long or go very well um, Mm because they really don't. They don't align super well. Um, But that experience of starting to read the Bible just in a different with a different lens than this is literal fact, um, as I was taught. And reading it, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but just reading it with a different lens kind of broke things open for me. And so started to question the denomination that I was in, and then that eventually led to leaving that specific denomination and going to just a very generic, general, non-denominational direction at first. Um, And then what I would, my my former uh, pastor referred to as Orthodox Light, um, kind of was the, the next destination after that before eventually just walking away from um, all what was orthodox like um so we did we uh used uh liturgy um which i had never yeah. done before we followed the liturgical calendar um we would have uh the, was the that meaningful communion. to you it was, was the yeah count? i'm doing it at pv yeah uh and at, when i was at highland we did ash wednesday to lent to advent to uh i mean i found it really helpful for like storying my life but i'm sorry i interrupted no i just i agree i think that our denomination of kind of building everything in modernity and i'm built around the bible and not adding any of these human traditions on was that we missed out on some really beautiful experiences that ground you and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. kind of tie you to a much larger story than american christianity i think uh, right. Christianity is much older than the United States, and that's right. There were some really beautiful things happening in it um, before before they came here, and we rejected those for some reason. And being a part of those made me feel um, part of a larger tradition, connected mm-hmm. me to something. Having liturgical prayers, I, man, being able to read what other suffering people had read um, or written and Mm -hmm. not having to be creative in my prayers um, was incredibly liberating. The idea of praying the same thing every day was really liberating. And I think I was taught whether I just soaked this up or was literally told, I don't recall, but 
our prayers are supposed to be these like conversations with God. And so if you're reading something, it's not really your heart that's reading it. And it just, it was really powerful to, to kind of yeah. remove some of those restrictions that I'd placed on myself or had, had placed upon me. What was, what was all this like? Um, Cause you and I grew up in the same tribe. When I, when I worked at the Hills and they added instruments, this was back in 2005. It was one of the most difficult times in my life because all of my family and my support, like the people that had believed in me and supported me, um, like it was basically like I had abandoned the faith. And I know that sounds silly, but these were sincere, good people who held strong convictions. And I had to just kind of work through honoring those people but it was just heartbreaking like i think my parents would deny this now but my wife would say we were lost my brother who was baptist called me and said i don't know what you're doing but keep it up because i'm the golden child right now (laughs) oh no so yeah uh what was that like if you, I don't know, you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but what was that like relationally with the people who, what's the last 10 years or however long you've been on this journey been like? Relationally? Yeah, I mean, well, publicly the journey was really only a couple of Facebook posts. So <laughs> it was, you know, a really effective form of communication and getting your, your message out there. Um, so obviously not being able to have in-person face-to-face conversations with some family members and they're only getting these pretty in hindsight, aggressive Facebook posts that um, definitely damaged some of those relationships. I, I don't feel as close to some of those family members, some, but we never talked about it. Um, we, they just unfriended me. So there was never really a, a meaningful conversation had about the spirit of what I was trying to say or the substance of what I was saying. It was just, well, I'm offended. I'm just going to unfriend you, which is kind of the Facebook way. Um, my parents and I, it's been kind of a struggle not so much with the Church of Christ um, aspect of it. Uh, my dad no longer attends a Church of Christ. He goes to a church with a rock band and lasers and smoke. Um, he okay. doesn't love the rock music, but um, the he's moved away from the, kind of that idea of, of, of acapella worship um, and uh, the other trappings of the Church of Christ. Um, so my parents and I, it's been kind of this this tension, and we've kind of unfortunately reached a point now where we just we we don't talk about it much um because of our disagreement um and the bigger issue for any like um doctrinal issue of of, you know women leading worship or being involved in worship or acapella the bigger issue is hell and uh before i uh deconstructed completely i one of the the piece the steps on that journey was a, a no longer believing in a literal hell um, and that was that was a step too far for my parents and and me and uh, became a pretty big sticking point in our in our relationship. You know, I I believe in hell. Um, you know, there's a, a Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf who says the the doctrine of no hell could only come from the American suburbs. He he uh, he saw genocide and you know all kinds of stuff in his home nation of Croatia. But with with that caveat said, there is a there is a strand of universalism within 
the Christian tradition, like going back to the second century, uh, David Bentley Hart, who is orthodox heavy, not light, um, <laughs> he just wrote a book that all shall be saved on Christian universalism that's pretty compelling. So all that to say, like, that's that's not outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Um, that may that may sound concerning to some people, but the Christian tradition is a big tent mm-hmm. of 2,000 years of people wrestling with the implications of God raising Jesus from the dead. And, um, I mean, yeah. I, there, have you heard of the River of Fire? I think, I'm not sure if that's the right. Oh, so we're back to hell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, is, what, is this? what is the River of Fire? I can't I don't remember. Know. I cannot remember who proposed this idea. But it was, the, and I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize to all our professional theologians that are listening to this. Um, yeah, that all, <laughs> they're the all dozen, yeah. the dozens of them. Um, the idea is that heaven and hell are the same place, and that um, a loving child in the embrace of their father is at peace, and a rebellious child in the embrace of their father is in torment. And so, no, I, I, I think that is so. I mean, that's kind of like C.S. Lewis's "A Mosquito's Heaven" would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings hell and i i do think that i don't know how it works out the great divorce i find pretty compelling by c.s lewis that that parable of it but um, i think the implication that was compelling for me was the idea that there was redemption possible that Mm -hmm. long enough in an embrace you would relax you would consent Mm -hmm. you would agree that okay this this is a loving father and that would give you the opportunity to to turn because um, the idea of eternal torment is untenable to me with mm-hmm. kind of lining up with a loving a loving God. And Jesus. Although and Jesus, Jesus talked about hell, it did seem like the character and nature of... So, um, I have an... I'm sounding very Christian right now, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like a Christian. You are. Um, <laughs> the... And I guess we'll get to where you've landed, but I had Richard Beck was an elder at the church I used to work at. And at one point we were having lunch and he's a universalist. And he said, because uh, I always, you know, what about Hitler? And he said, Jonathan, if God makes Hitler live through all six million deaths of the Jews and gypsies and black people he killed, um, if Jesus has to chase Hitler all around hell before he pins the star of David on him. Eventually, all will be saved. And I found that kind of like, and you know, in our own fellowship, Ed Fudge, who was a preacher in Churches of Christ, he uh, recently passed. He was, he got a lot of um, hard times because he believed in ultimate redemption for everyone. So, it's just within the Christian tradition. It's not like outside the bounds, and it's a disagreeable, you know. But do you agree people, or be- believe that that is found in Scripture, or is that extra biblical? No, no, yeah. Like so, Paul <clears throat> will say things about um, universal reconciliation. I mean, part of it is I think Christianity is a paradox of two opposing things being true at once, and so Paul will talk about universal reconciliation and then he'll also talk about judgment and damnation and all those things. So if we were having a conversation within the scope of Christianity and we were just arguing, I would I would 
make the case of like, I don't think hell is what most people, what comes to most people's mind. I think it's actually good news. <laughs> that sounds really bad. Like it I, does. I have a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I won't get into that. Anymore, but, um, I, if we, but we if we were having a, the conversation, I would say, do not imagine that we're more merciful than God, right? Like, I think hell is a form of God's mercy. And the great divorce is the kind of case I would be making for that. Okay. Like, human human nature being what it is, um, I think, ultimately, there are people who would be more miserable in heaven than in hell. And that's what I mean by the mercy of God. Like, hell is God leaving people to their own devices and letting them have their way. Um, but in, in the great divorce, buses run from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven all the time. And anybody can get on that they want. And I really like that. I mean, I, it just makes sense in the character of God. It's not, you know, it's just a parable. It's, yeah. but so, so hell was problematic. Well, just kind of going back, I mean, just just uh, I, I, a couple of thoughts as we were talking on the phone the other day, and I shared some of these with you. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's an idea in in many Christians' minds that atheists either one actually do believe and are just denying the truth that they know is is real. They're, they've chosen to deny it, and that's either because they don't want to believe because of the moral implications. Mm-hmm. Or they're too hurt by an experience to acknowledge the truth. There, there's they they it's it's easy to minimize not believing in God into a box that is safe and comfortable for you who still do That's believe right. in God on the um, outside. Then, like oh, those outside. those are people that are right. Right, you can and write them just, off and be dismissive. Yeah, and it's putting putting us now, which is very uncomfortable for me to say still um, in a new in a new box and. What I've come to believe and understand is that I'm not I'm not put in a new box as an atheist. I'm stepping out of a box that I was in before. Um, mm-hmm. So I know I, I don't believe in one. In, now I believe in one less God than I used to. Um, there were plenty of other gods that I didn't believe in before, um, and the same reasons that I don't believe in in those gods are the same reason that I no longer believe in the God that I used to believe in. Um, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't some like grand declaration or singular moment in time where I was like, this is it. Like I, I now declare that I'm stepping out of the box that I used to be in. (laughs) It was a very slow burn, um, and kind of a quiet, like, huh, I, I no longer believe in God. And it was a pretty difficult realization to come Mm -hmm. to because it wasn't something that I aimed to that wasn't my destination that I had in mind. Um, I wrap a lot of my identity in my upbringing. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. being a Christian was, was more than just a thing that I did on Sundays. I mean, I, I chose my college based on it. I, um, build, built relationships around that reality. I, um, tried to bring other people into my way of being. And so it wasn't, something that was easily discarded. And I know that even today there's still vestiges of that, that I, I bring with me in terms of like mm-hmm. thought crimes and guilt that I have from, from things that aren't actually like sin. Cause I don't 
believe in this idea of sin anymore. Believe, yeah, you don't believe in <laughs> so, sin. Yeah. So, so like, it's just a really, it's a really interesting journey um, that was kind of. I think we've talked about this. This idea, of like, just pulling at threads, and as you just kind of mm-hmm. keep pulling at them, um, the whole thing kind of comes unraveled. And the, and the first place that started for me, and so specifically, it started with the Bible. And as I started reading it, no longer reading it as a literal document, as God written document. Um, I mm-hmm. I don't think most biblical historians would hold that God wrote the Bible. I, I think that's no longer believed um, that it's a literal God inspired um, or maybe inspired is not the right word, but a God breathed in the sense that he told people what he was doing. whispering in Paul's yes, ear. Right. Now you want to, which say, is what I yeah, think. Okay. And I, I don't know how much of this I was taught versus I just absorbed. I believed that. I believe that every, every word in the Bible was like God breathes literally God yeah. used humans to write down his word. No longer believed that. Um, obviously, things like creation story came to believe as a myth, not myth in the sense of a, in the negative yeah, sure. sense, but to tell it, it was telling a truth, but not the truth. Um, the yeah. flood. It's not similar. trying to tell like sci- It's not a scientific. No, it's not a science document, right. right? And it never was meant to be. And so Christians mm-hmm. who use it that way are really abusing, abusing the Bible in a pretty and they're they're giving way. into the idolatry of scientism, like they're it's. It's, uh, you know, that's a 200-year-old discipline, maybe a little bit older, but, you know, it's modernity, and it's trying to read the Bible through the lens of your own idols. And we'll get there, Um, because that that was also a big part of it. And then morality became a big part of it for me, because reading the Bible, no longer reading it as factual, but then reading it as um, a myth myth document, you have a really hard time separating, okay, so what is myth and what is history? Um, Because... Obviously, the Old Testament blurs those lines pretty dramatically. I mean, things are written like Jonah? as if. Uh, well, I would read that as myth. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, but I guess you could read that as history. I was thinking more like Joshua, um, the Exodus. Mm, okay, gotcha. Like those yeah, doc, gotcha. those stories are written. So as you if. like you, you were uh, the Exodus. You were it was problematic, like the Exodus it story became problematic, um, kind of because of archaeology. And mm-hmm. everything that we know about historical Egypt, I mean, there's no, there is no account of that many Jews living in Egypt or that many Jews exiting outside of Egypt. And the region that they wandered in for 40 years is remarkably small. We have no archaeological evidence of, I mean, I don't know, how, the Bible doesn't specify how many there are, but hundreds of thousands up to millions of people wandering in this very small area. We have no evidence of that at all. Um, and Did so you, things like you weren't a Bible major, right? No, but at heart, as you know, at heart, well, I don't know if you do know at Harding, you're required to take a Bible class every single semester. Oh, I know that. Yeah. yeah I didn't know. Well, if, as a Bible pants. major, <laughs> pants. I didn't know if, as a Bible major, if you were aware of us, lesser mortals who just yeah the the non-bible majors um who had to take a bible class every semester so yeah i i I took a lot but i was not a bible major it became this uh challenge with the bible of what is what is history what is myth um and i felt i i came to believe that the bible the bible blurred those lines in a way that was very unhelpful for me to understand what was what am i supposed to be believing about this document you have you seen jordan peterson's work on the bible i have and i'm i'm curious what you think of that gentleman oh man uh helpful and problematic 
maybe maybe more problematic than helpful. But he's he's helpful to a lot of young men. That elder I was telling you about, Richard Beck, who is a, a pretty progressive guy, is blogging about him on Fridays, and you know I think I think there's a crisis of masculinity in the West, uh, and Jordan Peterson has really put his finger on that pulse. Like, I think I'm amazed that Christians have latched on to what he's saying because. His theology right. is so oh, it's problematic. Jacked up. <laughs> but he's doing what you're doing with myth. And yeah. I don't I don't think Christians have latched on you know, the Christians that I I spend time with would balk at latching on to him. But I do think churches have not been good for dudes mm-hmm. uh in a lot of ways. Like <clears throat> Oh man, we're going down a Mark Driscoll route now, aren't we? No, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Mark Driscoll is one of the ways they haven't been good for dudes. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, Fair enough. I don't think the crisis of masculinity is solved by making another crisis of masculinity, right? <laughs> by making like, me punch my neighbor in the face? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, anytime you're trying to be more manly than Jesus in the name of Jesus, like... I don't want to worship a guy I could beat up. Uh, that's kind of... <laughs> um, that was a really good impression, by the way. So, um, you you went down the pulling that thread. Was yes. there anything that you felt like you were bumping into anything real that wasn't like human constructed? In the Old Testament specifically? or the- No, I mean, so the book of Jonah, since we've used that... <clears throat> And and we talked offline about Karl Barth, and you'd paid attention to him. I find Karl Barth's take on the Bible incredibly helpful because I did this when I was at Harding. I came home from Harding, and I would say things to my parents that was you know I was deconstructing before we used that word. So I said <laughs> Such to a my parents, <laughs> "Well, yeah, no, it was it was Monty Cox." I said to my parents, "The Bible isn't the word of God," and they lost their mind. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I I didn't mean the Bible wasn't inspired. What I what I meant was what Monty had said. Uh, you know, we're not like we're not people of the book. We're people of the Word become flesh, and the Bible bears witness to the Word. The Bible is is the Word, and that it bears witness to the Word. But it's you know, so you you start deconstructing the Bible, which I do think is authoritative in a way to commune with God and be transformed by God. I, I deconstructed that, and Karl Barth was helpful in, like, he would say things like, the book of Jonah is unlike any other thing in ancient document. Like, if you want a God who tells you, like, hate hate your enemies and love the people who are like you, you don't want the God... That's revealed in Jesus Christ. And he's saying this to Hitler and Nazis and because Jonah and so it, it pushes against the human instincts and makes me think that it's bumping into something real. That's what I mean by that. Did you feel like at any point you were bumping into something that was I was having the opposite challenge because I was finding that the good stories of the Bible were also found in other ancient cultures. So hmm. the idea of being good to your neighbor, being good to others, is not a Judeo-Christian concept. I mean, that that existed before 
Abraham, right? Like that, that's not what, what, what I used to think was like a fundamentally radical idea was not as fundamentally radical as I had originally believed. The more Tell fundamentally me about how that existed before, where did that come from? I mean, in the, then the laws that we were reading from other cultures around like the Egyptian. And so this is where my, my knowledge Epic of is, Gilgamesh. Yeah. I mean, there's other, I don't know about specifically that one, maybe my knowledge is very shallow. Um, so I don't okay. want to like speak authoritatively, yeah, sure, sure. authoritatively on this issue, but, um, I know that in Egyptian cultures that there were concepts of being good to your neighbor. I mean, the fact that that Egyptian culture was society was as large as it was required um, people to exist in community and not steal, not murder, not um, Mm -hmm. rape. I mean, these these concepts aren't radically Christian or Judaic, right? Like they are part of the human ethos. What was more radical about this specifically about the Bible was this idea of one God. That was the radical mm-hmm. idea that was trying to be communicated, I, I think, um, through the Old Testament specifically. Um, so that, that, that's where the history and the, the literal reading of the Bible kind of bumped up for me, was that I had to actually take away the negative things in the Bible or the things that I personally viewed as evil um, obviously the stories of like slavery, of genocide, of, um, what's that guy's who, I can't remember his name. He, uh, prayed, he would sacrifice the first thing that walked across his doorway. And it was oh his yeah. Judges. Uh, yeah. You're talking about, uh, so that? anyway, let me, let me, yeah. how about this? Yeah. Like one of the, one of the challenges we have when it comes to those kind of passages is I think we misread an ancient document, the same that people 150 years ago read Genesis so, like, Judges is the darkest book in the Bible. People, a lot of people have lost their faith in Judges. So, I used to preach through Judges for Lent. I did it for a senior saint class at PV a year ago, and I, I, I made this sweet, sweet senior named Miss Betty read all the darkest passages. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, uh, because her face, it was so great. Everybody's on Zoom because of COVID, and her face is just, oh, this is... That's really, but (laughs) I know, I know. Um, But she has a great sense of humor. So um, judges is descriptive, not prescriptive. And it's trying to, it's like the breaking bad of the Old Testament. It's not trying to say God endorses this. It's trying to say, this is how human beings live when they don't submit to a king. So you could say it's propaganda for a king because it's you know coming up for First and Second Samuel, but it's not descriptive. It's trying to. It's not saying God wants you to live this way. It's trying to say because that's the refrain in the Book of Judges. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like art in that sense, and in that way, it makes the Bible much more compelling, not not problematic to me. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I think that I think that's I, I think that's definitely a, a takeaway that that's a direction you could go with it. Um, and yeah. actually, judges. Was I think that's problem. what it's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think similar things, and I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but similar arguments are made for like women at the tomb, like trying to those negative or um, culturally seemingly culturally irrelevant or irreverent. Um, concepts people use those to point to the veracity of the bible like right like 
women weren't respected. Women weren't even acknowledged in courts of law. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we have them as the first testimony, um, like why would the authors do that if it wasn't true? Um, coming to read more about burial rights, you know, women were the ones who did that. And so it was only mm-hmm. natural that they would be the ones to find them. Anyway, um, the, the negativity or the, the ugly parts of the Bible for me don't confirm its truth. Yeah, sure. They don't have that effect for me personally. And, and looking at like Exodus 21, where specifically the, you know, where we talk about slavery and um, kind of the laws governing slavery. I mean, that, that is a direct commandment from God um, on how, how to treat slaves, the rules around them, the fact that they're property that can be handed down. So this idea of like indentured, indentured servitude that we try to like soften slavery in the old Testament to like mm-hmm. be more palatable for our modern American, uh, understanding. That's simply not what's written there. Um, and so it's, it's less judges was problematic because it's like, Oh, <laughs> wow. Like there's some pretty horrible things that happened yeah. here done in the name of God, whether or not God endorsed them or not, they're done in the name of God, which does reflect human history, right? Like some pretty awful things in history have been done because of belief in God, uh, a God, whether it's a Christian God or not. Those, those passages became more problematic. Um, Again, reading those as, okay, even if they are myth, what are we supposed to do with those today? They they reflect something about this God character um, that isn't resolved in the fact that Jesus came. Um, because I used to read, and we've all heard the idea of you know Old Testament God or New Testament God. That that idea became untenable to me. Um, that God's character would change that dramatically from the person of Jesus. I started reading the Old Testament in a way that. It was all one big story of God's redemption of his creation, that that's really what we're supposed to take away is that he was fighting for us. He was working for us in the midst of all of our nonsense and our bad ideas and our evil. Um, He just, he made a way for his people. And that's ultimately realized in the person of Jesus. My challenge with that is that's not why it was written. That's not how it was written. And so the people who were pinning these words had no concept of the person of Jesus. And so... I wasn't able to do But they this. did have a concept of the Messiah. They did. I mean, they don't agree with who, who the person... I mean... Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They knew a Messiah was coming. But not. So, but even then, it wasn't a Messiah who was, was going to save them from eternal damnation. That's that's not the concept of the Messiah that they had. Which is right. ultimately and the, and what we believe about our, our Savior. So, do you... Our Savior, look at you. <laughs> Man, it's, see, yeah, it's still welcome there. Back. <laughs> wow, welcome back. Jonathan, converting one, just one, 30 minutes into a podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, like the starfish. I just think back and it made a difference to that one. <laughs> so um, what do you do with Jesus? Okay, so that's that was the, the thing that I was holding on to, um, mm-hmm. that I don't understand. The, I, I, I got to a point. Basically, I don't understand the Old Testament. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from it as a 21st century American Christian. But I believe that Jesus was who he says he was, did what he said or was said he did, and that ultimately he died and, and rose from the grave. Um, began reading some more about that uh, historical veracity of the resurrection 
and really started to um, struggle with even believing that that story is factually true. Um, the history that I had been taught, and I don't want to blame any of my professors at Harding because I'm pretty sure that I, you know, checked out of some of my Bible classes, but <laughs> I was taught that every apostle died and was a martyr for their belief in Jesus, that they were willing to die for what they believed. And why would they be willing to die if, if it wasn't true? Historically, we have an account of Peter, Paul, and James, brother of Jesus. That is, the historical record is really limited to those three. As, yeah, the rest is church tradition. Right, right. Um, which is a, is problem, was, became problematic for me. Um, then the idea of C.S. Lewis's liar, legend, lunatic, or lord. Um, and I think he only had three of those. I can't remember which one got added posthumously for him, but the idea of legend became very compelling. Um, it's not like King hard. Arthur. Yeah. Like it's not hard for me to see how the legend of a person like this, particularly in an orally driven culture, um, could, could blow up and could become mm -hmm. something. We don't have any eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the risen Lord. Um, Paul says 200 people saw it. We don't have any of those 200 accounts. So these things that I had been taught about the resurrection, um, either were not true or just grossly exaggerated um, in, in their... Was the, problem, was the problem underneath that, that kind of... People don't rise from the dead. Yes. Like that's... Okay. Yeah. Or, so, and, and claims about people rising from the dead are made all the time. So obviously... So what I would held on to is that, man, but all of these claims, none of them have had as much cultural significance as Jesus, right? Like that was pretty compelling to me as well that, I mean, that transformed history. I mean, our calendar is split by it. Uh, you know, world, there's no larger world. Well, there probably is larger world religion, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, Christian's the biggest. Christianity still. still the, yeah. Well, so it feels in the West, and this is why I'm doing the podcast, because in the West, statistically, uh, specifically among white, mostly men, um, Christianity is in steep decline. Like said another way, if you want to, if you go to a play, if you're on a street that there are really good tacos, there's probably not any atheist. If you go to a place where there's a lot of kale salad, you're going to be able to find some atheist. Like uh, what? What? <laughs> like, um, like. In the in the global South, Christianity is exploding. There's more Christians in China wow. than there are members of the Communist Party. So Christianity is is still the largest religion. But in the South, specifically under white Protestants, there's this thing of which we are both a part of uh, that of kind of. And I'm trying to understand it. And so, have you tried this on for size? And okay. feel free to push back. About the eyewitnesses, Richard Bauckham has written really good work on this. Um, called Je I think the book is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, but he's just talking about how in the Gospels, um, those 500 people that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, when it gives like the, the names of those people in the Gospels, like Simon, son of Rufus, carried the cross— um, those are like footnotes to the eyewitnesses that 
because the Gospels were written within a few decades of the story itself. Um, uh, well, like the latest would be John. Not, uh, I mean, early, early first century, early, early second century for some of them. So that would be like a pretty late dating, and John would be the only one that you'd be able to like make that strong case for. You would say, uh, like Mark comes first, probably within seventy A.D. So that's four decades. It's um, a long time. I mean, I know that's not like hundreds of years, but like that's, that's sure that's my lifetime. <laughs> like, yeah, my legend has blown up over the past forty years. I'll tell you that. That's um, right. So, I, I but people were still living within that time period, and and so you could like go talk. And First Corinthians, which is when Paul said, says that's one of the earliest letters we've got, and that was written within uh, twenty years. So you've got. And I think there were the, already. Yeah, the challenge is we just don't have we have secondhand accounts of eyewitness accounts, which. It, Sure. For historicity is is problematic. We don't. No one. So Paul says that he had an experience with Jesus, right? Paul is the only one we have as an eyewitness. I saw Jesus, right? Yeah, and that that becomes just again on its own, not a huge deal, right? Like. If that was the only issue that I had was the historicity of the resurrection, that I think I could probably work around that. It's this idea of you start pulling, going back to the threads, it just becomes mm -hmm. this like mountain of evidence that I didn't choose not to believe. This wasn't some like yeah. great. That was one of the most compelling things you said on the phone. And it made me realize like, I know this is heavy. And I really appreciate your kind of like intellectual honesty. I mean, these are these are better reasons than most that I've heard. Like, it's not like you're, but it, it feels like this has happened to you, if, if I'm hearing this correctly, more than you setting out to be like, man, I want to, I want to sleep sleep with a goat or something. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> awful, awful example. I, I've never oh. said those words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No, but I mean the like... The greatest of all in, time. In, I wanted to sleep with the greatest of all time, which is why I... <laughs> yeah, I could see where you... I could see where you got confused. That's that's on so me. Tom Tom Brady? Is that... <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, sure. I don't know. I, I, think, I think he's taken. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm sorry. This no, I'm, no, I'm, I I agree. I and I don't want to be the like definitely. I I don't think this is what you're saying. I don't want to play like the victim at all. But you're correct. I did not set out either like Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis to like prove the existence or non-existence of a god. That was not yeah. my goal. That was not my goal. Was to simply you're just understand. trying to live your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here it comes. This non-belief yeah. uh, just came and knocked me out. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. Like I, I would never have chosen this for myself because there's a lot that comes with Christianity um, that I no longer feel connected to. And I think the biggest of that is obviously the idea of community and, and this larger connection. Obviously, I still have that. I mean, you're not going, I don't think, you're not going to disown me 
Um, and even though we don't see each other or talk to each other every day, like I know that you're a person who would still love me and care about me. So I'm not like divorced from all connection and community, but there's definitely like a sense of loss that, that has come along along with this. Man, do you, what do you miss? I mean, do you miss anything about church? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I also lost this before my, my, I lost my belief. I miss the, um, the feeling that came with worship, like that loss of self and this connection to a really beautiful moment of everybody in the church singing the same thing, hands mm-hmm. raised. I still get that experience at concerts sometimes, but it's not nearly mm-hmm. as emotionally moving as, and transcendent. Um, and yeah, I miss that. I think that was really beautiful. I miss, um, there's a weird security that comes along with just being able to hand things over to a mysterious supernatural being. Um, and I haven't done that for a while. Um, but it's, it's really nice when you get into backed into a corner in an argument, just be able to go, well, God's ways are beyond my ways. And I can't, I can't, I can't articulate them. That was really like, it's a really nice place to be able to go. And now I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. which is not hard for me to do, which is not really like a radical statement to make, but, um, I miss that. I don't know. I I think there's going to be things because I'm still kind of fresh in this, this stage. I think there will be things that I don't even know that I've lost that'll kind of hit me, um, down the road probably. Here, here's the places where I, I would like to push back for you personally, but also if people are listening. I think Jesus of Nazareth changed the world more than we know. Do you believe historically he existed? Um, I'm agnostic about that. I, I think it's hard to deny that a person named Jesus, a rabbi even, named Jesus existed. I think that's hard to deny. Um so I, I would I would say most likely yes. So here's here's where I would get into the kind of just history and not just the first century history that you know the search for the historical Jesus that always winds up looking exactly like the Jesus we are, you know, conveniently. Um, yeah, right. Jesus is a scientist. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is you know whatever. Um, the so I get I get the temptation to think Jesus is mostly a human construct. Um, I, I've been I've been down that path, but my my thing is the two thousand years of church history. Um, I think that we our our world has been shaped by Jesus of Nazareth so much so that it's impossible to imagine what it would be like without him, unless you went to a place like um, China or India that has been touched less by his influence. And then you can kind of see like, well, that's disturbing or whatever. Um, the, But is so, it disturbing? What do you mean by disturbing? Can I just ask what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, the idea of human rights, for example... Um, the idea that Russia shouldn't 
invade Ukraine or wh whatever it is that is disturbing right now. Um, the idea that people should be represented by their government and that there is a gap between the government and the and the gods. Um, you know that those are distinctly Christian ideas, like give to Caesar what is Caesar, um, give to God what is God. Our notions of like religious church separation of church and state, um, human rights, <clears throat> caring for vulnerable people, humility being a virtue. But if you were to visit um, the slums of India, obviously those individuals are negatively impacted by the evil of the government and the caste system. But the individuals that you would meet and interact with in the slums of India would likely be beautiful people who are living out the way of Jesus in terms of peace and generosity and um, the things that we would attribute to the person of Jesus. Um, I, I have visited the slums of India several times, um, and I would say that there are beautiful people living with dignity um, that are... I, uh, here's, here's a better question. Instead of going down this and trashing people in the slums yeah, maybe, of India... Maybe start. That, that seems like a... <laughs> what's your view of human nature? Are oh, people man. basically good? Are people... Yeah. Not good. This is actually a philosophical question that led me, was another thread that I pulled at. I was taught that people are inherently evil, that we're, you know, the concept of original sin, that we're all bent towards our own desires, that we're all out for ourselves. And I don't know if I believe that anymore. I think that people are inherently trying to do the best they can. Obviously, we. <laughs> don't um, live up to that. And based on our geography, based on our upbringing, based on our mental health, um, we hit that mark more or less. But I, it's a choice, actually, to believe that um, people are doing the best that they can. So human nature is, how, I mean, how would you, how, so you, they're doing the best they can for, who? For them, I mean, I would say for themselves, um, but connected to that is the society and community in which you find yourself. So I believe morality is ultimately boils down to um, the pursuit of well-being. Um, that C.S. Lewis's concept of this, like, the only reason we know what is good and evil is because of, of God. Um, I, I reject that concept and believe that comes from our evolution and our understanding that for the betterment of our species, if people pursue well-being, another word that has more commonly applied is pursue pleasure, but obviously that brings up a whole lot of negative connotations that people just assume you mean, um, you know, sin. <laughs> and really pleasure sure, just means yeah. like making sure that... Avoiding I'm, pain. Avoiding pain. I mean, that's really what it yeah. is. And even Christianity, I believe, is the pursuit of avoiding pain because we're trying to avoid an eternity in hell. Um, hmm. And so uh, just stripped bare, I think that's where our morality comes from. I've gotten into some philosophical, pointless philosophical conversations about whether morality is subjective or objective. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not smart enough to, to know the answer to that. Um, but I believe, sorry to ramble, that ultimately people are 
bent towards good, trying to do good. Um, I could see Christianity being problematic with that view. Like, um, I think if you if you think human beings are basically good, then religion feels like an imposition from the outside that's unneeded. The negative thing is I think that's a naive view of human nature. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it can stand the test of life experience overall. But believe it as long as you can. <laughs> well, doesn't the opposite also create some concerning uh, challenges for religion? So, if I think the doctrine of sin is one of the most democratic, uh, yeah, but it's not doctrines there are. But it's not because we aren't responsible for our sin. Like we're at the mercy of Eve. If you know that there was an original sin, and so because of that choice that was made long ago by the person that God placed first, we are forever tainted by that, that we are forever bent. And so we were made in the image of God. And so we had the propensity for evil inside of us. And so now we are at the mercy of that propensity, which was given to us by our creator. I'm going to just Google real quick what propensity. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I, I, when I say democratic, I mean it cuts through everybody. Kings, queens, presidents, popes, peasants, people that live in the slums. And I think here would be my pushback to the human condition vision. Um, I think people are basically okay as long as everything's okay. But when resources are limited or when, you know, Black Friday, you know, like, you know, it'd be it's one thing to talk about the human condition in a coffee shop with your bank account full. It's another to talk about it in the slums of India or, uh, you know, the but even Black Friday, right? The shallow like commercialism event of the year. People are, this is, this is going to be a very naive view. They're trying to get something to make their tribe better, their world, not just themselves likely, right? Like their kids, their family that they've surrounded themselves, sure. like they're trying to get the best experience for their people. Um, it's obviously a distorted view, a selfish view, a broken view. But even at that, like they're they're acting within their morals in a weird way. Sure. Um, oh, I agree. I think morality is. I mean, and what you're describing, um, if you're on the inside of that, feels great and warm. And we got the TV, and we can watch Charlie Brown Christmas on a 85 inch, <laughs> you know, whatever. But um, on the outside of that is tribalism, racism. Oh yeah, you know. And all, all these things, which the Bible pushes against. And does it, though? Carl Bo- yeah, totally. It totally does. What? Like, you won't find an ancient document like the Bible in that regard. There's nothing like Jonah in the ancient world. Like, yeah, there's, the, there's flood parallels, but there's not Jonah parallels. But there's also, I mean, so Jonah, sure, we can, we've got that one. But we also have <laughs> extreme examples of genocide against people who don't look or believe like you do like sure. wipe them off the face of the earth with no but just sidebar no historical evidence to back up whether that happened or not right um 
but the command from God to wipe out every man, every woman who's laid with man, um, take the daughters for yourselves. Like, okay. So you're talking about Deuteronomy 21. Mm-hmm. So let's dig in there. Um, Deuteronomy 21, there's a, um, a book by William Webb called Slave Wh- Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. Um, one of the challenges of reading ancient documents like the Bible is that we apply the ethics of the Bible post, you know, like, so all that stuff is really disturbing because of the ethics that the Bible actually gave us, or more specifically, Jesus of Nazareth gave us. I, I think you, could, you'll, you might disagree with that, but I, I believe it's true. And um, here's Deuteronomy 21. 10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and her attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Um, I'm becoming an atheist reading this. So bring her so sorry. Bring her Yeah. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month. Then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Okay, super problematic passage that you've referred to. Um, and so let me say a couple of things. One, we're judging it by modern 21st century standards that I don't know that are entirely fair. And two, in the day that it was written, it was revolutionary. Because... Um, God, I think, is meeting these people where they are in a tribalistic, violent society, and he's telling these people, okay, when you go in and you take them, if you see a woman that you're attracted to, you may take her as your wife. Now, I've seen enough war movies to know that when soldiers go in and see a beautiful woman, they're not like, you know what we should do? We should marry her. And then the second thing is... Uh, give her a time set aside that she may mourn her family and what she lost, and then you may marry her. And if you aren't pleased with her, she is to go free. She's not property. So what feels barbaric and unthinkable today would have been a step forward in the day. That's what William Webb is saying in Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, that book. That it's a trajectory of a different... So God meets this kind of... I mean, from Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham on, God is trying to form a different group of people. So that that's the case. I think that passage is a good litmus test for it. Is that compelling at all? Um, no. Be, <laughs> I, I, like, I appreciate that. I mean, that's that's... The, that's where I was before I landed where I am now. That yeah. the idea of the Old Testament is a story of a God meeting his people and ultimately leading them to the person of Jesus where all became clear and, and right and um, that all of that Old Testament makes sense in the context of that reality of Jesus. The challenge yeah. becomes... That's not a good God. Um, that's not a loving God. So that even that story, sure, maybe is a step forward for the time, but that's not a good story knowing what we know now. 
because even the idea of taking her as a wife, she would have been one of many. Um, if you were not pleased with her, had nothing to do with her cooking skills or her sewing skills. It was whether she pleased you sexually or not. Um, that's not like, that's not a moral story. That's not a good story. And so how could, and so I'm going to ascribe attributes to God that you may not hold, but all loving, all knowing, and all powerful was what I believed God was. And these stories became problematic with that view of God. And so I had to start removing attributes from God. And once I started doing that, the idea of this all-powerful supernatural being who brought everything into existence ultimately wants the best for us began to crumble. So using the Facebook post that kind of inspired this podcast conversation today, how do we know that God is good? And then how do we know that God is not evil? And it seems to me that we use the exact same criteria for both of them, um, or we are inconsistent with the way we use the criteria. We say that we know God is good because the Bible tells us so, because in my life I have experienced positive things. I prayed for my sister's cancer to go away. It went away. Um, I avoided, or I, I asked for something and God gave it to me. God is good. Alternatively, look around everything that is in this world. It's unbelievable to think that this could happen by accident. We use, we look, we use the same senses looking at the world around us and we see suffering that is not man created. We see leukemia in children. We see um, natural disasters that wipe out people. Um, we see evil inside of humans as well. Um, and we look at that. And so why can't we look at that? Or we look at the Bible and we see stories like this um, that are not good. And we say, rather than using the senses that we apply to seeing God as good, we say, well, God is mysterious or God's ways are beyond our ways. And it's a logically inconsistent way to arrive at the, the conclusion that we do. It's, it's a cop-out in a way. And so for me, that, the story of Deuteronomy 21 is problematic because it doesn't point to a good, loving God at all. Even if it's a step forward, it's a very weird way for him to communicate. If, if my eternal soul is based on an understanding of that God, he did a very poor job of communicating with me today. And I know that's self-centered and the way I said that was negative, but it doesn't feel like a consistent way that an all-powerful, all-loving God would choose to communicate with his creation, if so much was writing on the line. So is suffering been a big part of of your kind of loss of faith yeah it because absolutely. there's so much suffering in the world absolutely and and you know the way that i arrived at that before atheism was there would be no answer that would be satisfying i think nt wright wrote that that if we could have yeah. the answer from god on why bad things happen it wouldn't be satisfying to us but even that is kind of defaulting to this idea that god's ways are bigger than our ways and we can't we can't mm -hmm. understand them suffering Suffering is like a little bit of an acid drip on faith because you're compassionate and you care about stuff. And after a while, in my experience, progressive Christians are like, why do I care about this more than God? Well, there must not be a God. But on the flip side, as someone who I grew up poor and I lived and worked with 
poor people. Um, and, and I've done the, you know, the mission stuff, going to support our missionaries and different mission points. The people who suffer the most don't go this way. It tends to be the people on the outside of the suffering. You know, the Christian faith is pretty unique in the sense that the God that promises no suffering, that God is not a God to believe in. Because the Christian faith, you know, it seems like we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the Christian faith started with the worst thing happening to the best person. And it's not, there's no explanation for suffering. I mean, that's the big hook for, um, I mean, I get it. I, I sympathize with it. There's no way around that. I mean, like if, if that's the reason to walk away from faith, you know, fair, it's fair, but it's not, the, the Christian faith does kind of just sidestep that and say God entered it and God went through the worst of it. One, one question, what do you do with Sunday? Like historically speaking, when there, I think there the two evidences for God, um, outside of like historical stuff, resurrection and the people who attest to it, but we have different barometers for the historical veracity of those things. But one, the existence of the Jew, like, Karl Barth said that the existence of the Jew was the best proof of a God. Um, and I think he's on to something there. Like, these people should not exist. Every culture and every, you know, millennium tries to squash them out. And According and yet, to the Bible, here they are. Sure. Well, because we don't have, okay. we don't have. Let's just go back six decades. <laughs> well, like we can. Well, we can, oh, no, fair. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry, I, but I'm thinking like the stories of persecution that the Hebrews faced in the Old Testament is not reflected in ancient history either, right? So a lot of these, um, a lot of these accounts of of trying to be wiped out are not reflected in like Babylonian history necessarily. The Hebrews are not spoken of yeah, they're not a, i mean they're so marginalized it'd be like uh what's that group that was that is being that was being persecuted by isis the um little small group of religious minorities i can't remember what it was but it's kind of like them they're not going to be attested to in history either so the second thing is what do you do with your weekend like religious people don't change you and i both know that like, they resist change better than anybody. I, I think, you know, N.T. Wright has that big, thick book, Resurrection of the Son of God, and he's a, he's a top-class scholar and historian um, who's dug into the history of it all. And, and one of the things he says is that the fact that tens of thousands of people within the course of months, moved from worshiping God that their great-grandparents had done for millennium from Saturday to Sunday is something that must be wrestled with. because, the, And the reason was because of the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, enjoy your weekends, everyone listening. Like atheists, agnostics, everybody. The calendar that we have, the life rhythm that everybody has in it, in the West is because of these stories, um, believable or not. I, I don't, I don't hear that 
argument being made, even though it's a, a pretty good one, I think. Well, it's, I mean, it kind of goes back to the idea of cultural relevance, right? So the entire shape of Western culture, which I think is a really critical piece of this um, conversation, Western culture is incredibly shaped by Christianity, right? So right. Um, I think that is a compelling argument, um, but it doesn't. Welcome it, back. It does. Welcome back to faith. <laughs> it does God. not. It does not seal the deal for me in the sense that sure, there's obviously sure, like yeah. reasons. I mean, because there was political reasons that that happened. There was. You look at the Catholic Church and the the power that they wielded, weld welded. <laughs> that they held for so so long <laughs> pretty sure weld was not the right word uh yeah you know, they so like, soldered it yeah so there's like I, I mean that's a but it's western it's not it's not universal um yeah sure. so so i i would like to come and do a follow-up podcast maybe in the next season of bonafide which is the brand todd bonafide um <laughs> yeah about the western influences of christianity i i read all the time for this in particular for this because i and it's a labor of love i i've I've learned in this podcast like people like you who i care about deeply did not choose this and i found myself having much more sympathy because it's not like you're trying to be you know hostile it's it's like you wanted to believe, but it was just, it became harder and harder. So I get paid to sit and read and, and think and pray and all those kind of things. And so for the last, I don't know, almost decade, you have been on my radar and I've been trying to like read through this. So there's a few books, one written by a guy um, who's not a believer, but it's called Dominion uh, by Tom Holland, who is not the Spider-Man. He's a he's a historian from Britain, and it's a it's a big book. Um, another another one that's more accessible, but it's written by a Christian in Australia, and he's got a really good podcast called Undeceived or Un Undeceiver. Uh, John Dixon, it's Bullies and Saints, and he's going to make some of the same cases of both the worst parts of Christian tradition, the Christian history and the best parts. Um, but hunting magic ills by Richard Beck would be the one that I think would be the most helpful for you. And one of the things that I would, I would say, well, Richard would say is, um, keep an eye on mental health in this season. Like, um, that God shaped hole that sounds super like, (laughs) Um, it's a real Richard thing. Beck is, like it's a real thing, for sure. Yeah, what you said earlier about you're not going to be written off or cut off, whether you believe the gospels or not anymore. I do, and the resurrection right after it first happened, Thomas didn't believe, and a few weeks later, when Jesus shows up, Thomas is still with them. Like his community didn't kick him out. And, you know, I know you live in not God's country of Little Rock, Arkansas, (laughs) but you're my people. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate the sincerity with which we had this conversation. This is one of the first ones that I've had post deconstruction. Um, 
And so this is all still new for me to articulate and put out into the universe. So I appreciate the grace with which we were able to, to have this conversation. Um, You're a special dude to me, Todd. Oh, thank you. I mean, I did get, I, I got bad Brad a, a mohawk for crying out loud. Okay. Let me, um, can I, so I'm not going to recommend a book because I'm so postmodern and Gen Y. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, going to be a debate between Mike Lacona. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. And Bart Ehrman. Oh, I know Bart. You know, he grew up Church of Christ. Yeah. He, I, I didn't know that until I started kind of coming across some of his stuff. And so Bart hit Dr. Ehrman. I shouldn't Bart. We're not on a first name basis. Dr. Ehrman and I um, have, he's been one of the ones that has um, shaped a lot of my understanding of the historicity of the Bible. Um, a lot of his mm-hmm. writing. So he and Mike, Dr. Mike Lacona is a Christian historian and Dr. Bart Ehrman is no longer Christian. Um, and they're going to have a day long debate about the historicity of the new Testament. Um, mm. And I, I, I just, I'm intrigued by that. I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, they both respect each other, so it's not going to yeah. be this hostile um, experience, but they both bring deep knowledge of the history. And um, I think, I think it would be worthwhile. Where do you find that at? Um, it's on, on the YouTubes. Um, I'll send you a link to it. Okay. Okay. And I don't know how to do this, but I've heard people say it. I'll put it in the show notes. So (laughs) let's take a break and maybe come back next season. Okay. I love it, John. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks for doing this, Todd. I really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Bonafide. If you like what you've heard, please share with your friends and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts.